going to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Curveball. The book of Matthew, chapter 21. Taking a break from Hebrews uh, the next couple weeks for the Easter season. And today we look at the passage concerning the triumphal entry. Uh, entry. This is Palm Sunday, so in honor of God's word, I invite you to stand to your feet as we read this passage. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them, put their cloaks, uh, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd, most of the crowd, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Ask, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher this morning. Father, we pray against the enemy who wants to uh, take the seeds that are planted and snatch them and choke them and, and make them fall into shallow ground. But I, I pray, Father, that our hearts would be fields, fertile fields, uh, accepting of your word this morning. That this word may sink deep roots into our soul, that it may grow up, that it may be fruitful in our lives. Father, for your name's sake, for your glory, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. One of the great, uh, often overlooked themes in the Bible is the subject of waiting. Waiting. Waiting for God to show up, waiting for God to act, waiting for God to do the things that he promised. Abraham waited 25 years between the receiving of the promise that he would have an heir uh, to the actual time when Sarah gave birth to a son. Joseph waited 13 years in prison as an innocent man before God finally set him free. Moses waited 40 years in the desert before God used him to lead Israel out of Egypt. And then he waited another 40 years after that to actually get into the promised land. And then he never got in. David waited 15 years between the time that he was anointed to be king 
and the time that he actually received the crown. Israel waited 70 years in Babylonian captivity before God brought them home back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. By the time we open up the pages of the New Testament, we find a people that have been waiting for 400 years for God to speak again. 400 years of silence from heaven. And in that time, between that 400 year span, Rome has become an empire that has taken over the Mediterranean world, including Israel and their most prized city, Jerusalem, which is also called in the scriptures Zion. The Romans had allowed the Jews to work and to worship and to do life pretty much as normal, but they left no doubt who was in charge. They left no doubt who was in control over the city. It belonged to Rome. Uh, the word of revolt was spread among certain groups within the city, but if you were discovered to be in one of those groups, then you would find yourself on a cross. Many of the Jews still believe that a king, their king, uh, who they called the Messiah, was coming to a, establish his throne, and that when he did, then he would obviously defeat all the nations of the world, but especially Rome. And they waited. And they waited. The thing you need to understand about waiting on God is that it is never passive. It's not passive. Waiting on God is, is what I, uh, I'm going to call aggressive waiting. Aggressive waiting. A Andrew Murray goes so far as calling waiting on God the blessed life. You ever think that when you're sitting in traffic? Here's what Andrew Murray said. He said, what a blessed life the life of waiting then becomes. The continual worship of faith, adoring and trusting his goodness. As the soul learns its secrets, every act or exercise of waiting becomes just a quiet entering into the goodness of God. To let it do its blessed work work and satisfy our every need and every experience of God's goodness gives new attractiveness to the work of waiting instead of taking refuge in time of need there comes a great longing to wait continually and all day and however duties and engagement occupy time and mind the soul gets more familiar with the secret art of always waiting waiting becomes the habit and disposition the very second nature and breath of the soul. I, I titled this, this message, The Weight of Waiting, and it's a little tongue-in-cheek because it has a double meaning depending on how you understand it or how you kind of feel about waiting. There is the weight of waiting, where waiting feels like just a heavy burden, right? You're just like, ah, oh, I hate waiting, I hate waiting. We, we are not a, a patient society. We don't like to wait. But there's the other side of it where there is a weightiness to it. A, a weightiness that comes from experiencing God in, in a very trusting, quiet, non-anxious way. 
So there's two forms of waiting or the weight of waiting. Uh, the people who shouted out Hosanna on the day that Christ arrived into Jer to Jerusalem have been waiting. They've been waiting for, for that moment. They have been aggressively waiting, we could say. They have prayed. They have worshipped. They have studied the Hebrew scriptures. Right? They were familiar with, with passages like that in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which is quoted here in Matthew. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Remember, that's Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Who's coming to you? Your king. Your king. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the king is coming, and these people that are shouting out Hosanna are not just simply going, wow, this is kind of fun. we got somebody interesting coming into town. No, they fully believe that Jesus is the answer to that, that prophecy, that he is the coming king. Now, here's the thing. 500 years have passed since Zechariah wrote those words. 500 years of waiting. And while some people have stopped waiting, some of the Jews, many of them remained expectant. There is a certain calmness and, and quiet in waiting. It's what we call peace. Peace in it. But waiting on God is not easy. It's not easy to do. And there are several groups of Jews who decided that instead of waiting for their king to show up, that when it came to dealing with Rome, that they would take matters into their own hands. Some of these you're very familiar with. One of those groups is the Pharisees. The Pharisees, I call the Pharisees the cooperators. Why are they the cooperators? Well, the Romans were the political force in Jerusalem, but they allowed the Pharisees to remain the, the spiritual, the religious force in Jerusalem. So the Romans agreed to allow the Pharisees to keep their Jewish practices, to keep their temple, to, to do all of the things that they, they did, the festivals and the sacrifices. They allowed them to continue those things as long as they stayed in their lane. Because as soon as they would get out of their lane, then, then all bets were off. Rome had the ultimate authority. So they had to cooperate with Rome. They were the cooperators. Then there was another group of people called the Zealots. The Zealots. These are the conspirators. Right? Zealots were these vigilantes who, who were subversive. I, I call them the subversive ninjas of Jerusalem. Because they would go around, they had these sharp daggers. And uh, they would come up behind these Romans, you know, and just kind of disappear. And, uh, and they, they had a motto that was, uh, every, uh, every good Roman is, is a dead Roman. <laughs> then there were the Herodians. The Herodians, I call them the collaborators. They, they were the Jews who liked the finer things that Rome brought with them. They're like, hey, these, these Romans aren't so bad. Right? And so maybe we could kind of join up with them. 
get on their good side. They were named after Herod, of course. Herod was a Jew who rose to power in the system as the governor of Jerusalem. So he was kind of this in-between guy, right? He was, he was Jewish, but he was pro-Rome. So you can imagine that the Zealots and the Herodians were not exactly on the same page. Another group is called the, the Sadducees. I call them the conformists. The conformists. They were the uh, aristocratic families in Jerusalem, and they liked to stay in very good relationship with Rome because they wanted to maintain their, their place in the culture and society. They were very wealthy, and they had lots of prestige. They were very educated. And uh, in fact, their education led them to come to the conclusion that there was no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. And so these are the Sadducees. So you got the cooperators, the conspirators, the collaborators, and the conformists. All in Jerusalem at this time. They are the ones who didn't wait. These were the ones who were not ready when Christ came into the city. These are the ones that Isaiah spoke of when he said this in Isaiah 30, 15 through 16. In repentance and rest is your salvation. Repentance, rest, quietness, and trust is your strength. That's waiting. But you, no, you would have none of it. You said, no, 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 no. We will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is going, look, there is a, a way of life, a way of waiting on God that brings a quietness and a, and, a, and a silent strength to your soul. And these people said, no, <laughs> I'm not waiting on God. I mean, he's taken forever. It's been 500 years. Now, we will do our thing. Notice the lack of peace and quiet. Notice the lack of just being calm. These people are full of anxiety. I know what we will do. They're constantly focused. This is what we're going to do. We're going to flee on horses. So, yeah, you will. Uh, we're going to ride off on swift horses. And God says your pursuers will be just as swift, if not swifter. In other words, you're just going to be in constant anxiety, constant turmoil. At the same time, you had these, these various factions, these groups in Jerusalem. You, you had a large bit of just simply ordinary people. Tradesmen, merchants, families. These are not wealthy people. These are not influential people. These are not powerful people. These are simple worshipers of God. Ordinary folks. These are the expectant ones who quietly waited for the day that the Messiah would come. These were the people who welcomed Jesus the day he rode into town. They may not have been Bible experts like, like the Pharisees were, but they knew enough to know that the Messiah had performed, would perform miracles, and this guy had performed incredible miracles. They know that the Messiah was going to set people free, and they've seen and heard stories about 
this Jesus who is setting people free. Jesus has done everything that the Messiah was supposed to do. And now here he is on a donkey, and they know enough from their scriptures to say, that's exactly what Zechariah said was going to happen when the king showed up. That's how he would come. And so they have seen spectacle after spectacle of Roman processions coming into Jerusalem, right? When the emperors or the generals would enter town, surrounded by their armies, surrounded by prisoners of war, their spoils of war, and they would ride in with their head held high on golden chariots pulled by four war horses. This was very different. This is incredibly different. This king was different. He was the king of the common man. He was humble. He didn't ride in high and exalted. He rode, rode in lowly and humble. A humble king. Well, that's an incredible oxymoron to a Roman. It just didn't kind of work together. Now, it, it will be said today uh, by multitudes of, of pastors and teachers all across this great nation. <laughs> I know what's going to happen. They're going to stand behind pulpits today and they're going to say this, that the same people who cried out Hosanna on the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem in less than a week were yelling crucify him. I know they're going to say that because I was one of them. I used to say that. But I'm embarrassed to say that that's not true. That's not what happened during Jesus' last week leading up to the cross. These were not fickle people who turned on Jesus. How many times have you heard about the fickle people who cried out Hosanna and who later said, crucify him? These are not fickle people. In fact, quite the opposite. They were incredibly faithful people. In fact, they were so faithful to Jesus that the religious leaders and the groups associated with those religious leaders actually feared these people. Well, let's walk through some of the events of, of Jesus' last week, and I'll show you what I mean. I, I, I love this week, the Passion Week. I, I love the stories associated with it. And so uh, we're going to kind of walk through some of those this, this, this morning. And I want you to see how the people who cried out Hosanna were not fickle, but faithful. And then we'll, we'll talk about why that is so. So let's walk through the events of Jesus last week. The day Jesus entered the temple uh, on that first Palm Sunday, they call it that at the time, he was greeted by common people filled with hope because they have been waiting. They knew and believed their king was coming. They've been waiting for 500 years. Generation upon generation sharing this truth. We know that the kids knew it because the kids were present when Jesus showed up. They knew Zechariah's prophecy. They also knew the Psalms. They knew Psalm 118, which we read this morning. Again, let me read it to you, verses 25 through 27 of that psalm. They prayed, save us, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
We bless you from the house of Israel. The Lord, he is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. These are the words in this psalm that they shouted and sang as Jesus entered in through the east gate. He came through the east gate into Jerusalem. It marked uh, the beginning of the Passover week. Now, you see the word there where it says, save us, we pray. The Hebrew word for save us. Anybody want to care to wave? Guess, guess what the word is? Yes? It's Hosanna. Hosanna. So when, when, when we read Hosanna, when we sing Hosanna, that's the Hebrew word, which when translated into English is simply save. Save us. People were crying, Hosanna, which was a cry, save us. So they believed that he was sent in the name of the Lord to do just that. They believed that he was coming, not only in the name of the Lord, but they said that come in the name of the Lord, son of David. So they also believed that he was the promised king that would descend from David's throne. And so these people believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the king. But not everyone believed that. In Luke's account of the triumphal entry, he adds this in Luke 19, 39 through 41. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, so we got some Pharisees that showed up. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. What would bring you peace, a waiting, quiet peace, if you had known. I, 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 I love that that addition into the, the story because the religious professionals, they refused to see what the common people of the day saw. That, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the king, that they are saying he is the one that Psalm 118 is talking about, Hosanna. And the Pharisees are going, shut up. Jesus, tell your people your disciples, to knock it off. What are they saying? They're saying, who do you think you are to receive that kind of praise from these people? They're not, they, they obviously don't believe that he's the Messiah. And Jesus says, in effect, there will be worship. When the Messiah comes in, there will be worship. Even if you silence these people, the rocks will cry out because I've come to redeem all of creation. After this, two distinct groups begin to form. There are the, the believers and the religious unbelievers. Luke tells us this in Verse 47 through 48 of 19. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. 
So you got two groups here, right? You have the chief priest, <laughs> the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people. That's, a, that's an oppressive group. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to kill him. And yet you've got these ordinary common people, the people, the laos, and they are hanging on every word. They're just going, oh, I just love everything that he says. And the people who want to kill him are going, they can't kill him because he has such a popular following with the ordinary people. I'm like, man, how are we going to pull this off? So you have a group made up of chief priests, teachers of law, and leaders. Then you have ordinary people. Who should have been leading the way, do you think? So I want you to notice what happens next, all right? This is how the story begins to unfold in the last week of Jesus. What happens next? Well, the next day, <laughs> Jesus decides that it would be a good idea to cleanse the temple. So he comes in, he's going to cleanse the temple, and he starts turning over tables, and it says that he turns over the tables of the money changers. We've heard that so many times, that have you ever stopped to ask, what are money changers, and why are there money changers in the temple in the first place? Well, the religious leaders had set up a, a system to take up a temple tax, which is not just simply on them, that, that came from the Old Testament, it was legit to take up a temple tax, but they decided to go the extra mile. So they came up with what was called temple currency. In other words, your money couldn't work in the temple. You had to have temple money. You had to have temple currency. Well, the exchange rate for temple currency was, was astronomical. Right? It, was, it was less than 50 cents to the dollar. So this was how the religious leaders were paying not just for the temple expenses, but we also discovered that they were paying themselves. And, and so they're living pretty well compared to the ordinary people that they are been given the job of, of serving. And so you can imagine, of course, the Jewish people who came to wanted to worship God, they had they, where else would they go, right? They were part, they had to be part of the system. There was no other system to be a part of as a Jew. So you had to pay this tax, this exorbitant tax. You had to take your money, exchange it, and you're already poor, and, and get this temp money to pay your taxes. So they're being ripped off, and they're being ripped off by their own leaders in order to do it. Not to mention, right, again, that these people could barely afford the temple tax while the Pharisees who are receiving it are, are living it up. It's a jacked up system. And so Jesus says this. He says, you have turned the temple from a house of prayer into a den of robbers, a den of thieves. Now that is a quote that comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jesus is alluding to something specifically when he says that. When Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, here's what we find. The Lord is speaking. He says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods, yet you have not known and 
that you have not known, and then you come and stand before me in this house, my temple, which bears my name, and you say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things. We're under grace. Has his house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? I've been watching, declares the Lord. There's, there's two things going on when, when Jesus says that. Both of them are fascinating, right? Jesus is saying, in effect, he's accusing these religious leaders of two things. One is you're, you're an idolater. You're an idolater, namely you worship manna, right? Much the same way in Jeremiah that they served and followed other gods, you do too. And secondly, he's calling them hypocrites, right? Thinking they're safe. Because we have God, we can do whatever we want. And then he says, but you've turned my house into a den of robbers. And then he says, I have been watching. And so when Jesus says that, basically what he's saying to these people is, is I've been watching. Declares who? The Lord. I've been watching because I'm the Lord. So, Unsurprisingly, the religious leaders really didn't take kindly to that. Right? Not only are the religious leaders angry, but they're totally embarrassed in front of all the people. Because now all the people, and every time Jesus does this, he, he does it publicly. All the people are now vindicated that someone has finally said, you're ripping everybody off. And so they're going, man, this is Jesus. This Jesus is a troublemaker. And he's a rebel rouser. We got to get rid of this guy. So then what is the Pharisees' next move? Right? They're going, okay, we got to get rid of this guy. What do we do? What's the next move? Well, to get the attention off of themselves for jacking up the temple taxes, which they did, they say to Jesus, hey, hey, we... What about the taxes that people are paying to Rome? Forget about what we're doing. What about Rome? Rome doesn't even belong here, and they're making us pay taxes. What do you have to say about that, Jesus? Well, look at verse 15. I love it. Verse 15. But then the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, and they were indignant. And they said, why are you doing these things? And why are you saying these things? Have you never read of the mouth of infants, nurse, nurses, and babies have prepared praise and leaving them? He went out of the city in Bethany and lodged there. Then he curses a fig tree. And so you got this, this have you not heard that, that the praise that I'm going to receive is going to come from, from just these, these babies, these, these infants, these children, these ordinary people? It's just stunning. And so they're going, well, what about the taxes? What about the taxes? And he's like, what about the praise? What about the worship? And so Jesus says, give me, somebody give me a coin. And somebody gives him a coin. And he, he takes it and he says, whose image is on this coin? And they say, well, that's Caesar, of course. And Jesus says, well, then give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And give to God that which is God's. Do you see what he just did there? 
He, they're trying to turn this on him, right? And then Jesus turns around and flips it back on them. Now, here's what happens. As the story is unfolding, we discover that when they were trying to trick Jesus, they brought a certain group of people along with them, these religious leaders. And they were called the Herodians. Remember them? So here's the, here's the plan, right? They're going to go, all right, we're going to trick Jesus. We're going to talk about taxes. And we're going to trap him. Because if he says at any point, if he says, look, uh, I'm not about these taxes either. I mean, what are we going to do? It's, you know, it's just Rome. It's not fair. We need to stop. Uh, then, then Rome is going to get obviously irritated by him. He's an insurrectionist. And he's going to then be in trouble with Rome. And so that's why they have the Herodians, because the Herodians are pro-Rome. So they're like going, well, we, we'll have evidence. We'll have our Roman you know, cohorts there, and we got them. But if he, if he, if he says that we should pay the taxes... You know, and, you know, we got to pay the taxes. Then, then the people are going to say, well, he, he's one of those Roman guys. He's pro-Rome too. And so no matter where he turns, we got him. He's either going to irritate and tick off Rome or the people. And what he does, he points it and he spins it right back on them. And he says, well, who's... It's got Caesar's picture on it, so I guess it belongs to him. Give it to Caesar. Oh, and while you're at it, give to God what is God's, which is another way of saying, oh, have you been doing that? Oh, wait, no, you've been ripping everybody off. I love it. And it says that the people, the people were just going crazy. Right? His, his approval rating's going way, way up. And Jesus calls them you hypocrites, you hypocrites. So after he pulled this off, right, <laughs> he basically says, uh, okay, next. And so then comes the Sadducees, right? The Sadducees come walking up to the plate and they're, they're listening. They just watch their, their fellow Jews get annihilated, the Pharisees get annihilated by Jesus. And one of the Sadducees is like, here, hold my beer. I'm going in. And so they go in, and the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, as the Pharisees did. They had a, a favorite argument that they loved to use to stump the Pharisees with. And so they thought, well, we'll stump Jesus with it. And the, the, the argument basically goes something like this. They're like going, hey, uh, there's this guy, and, and he marries this woman, and, or, or, or vice versa, this woman, she marries this guy, and, and he dies. And then she marries another guy, and he dies, another guy, he dies, another guy, he dies. So at the resurrection, uh, who's, who's, because they don't believe in the resurrection, right? Whose husband will she have then? They're like going, high-fiving, because they're like going, that, we have stumped the Pharisees for years on that. And Jesus looks at them, 
And he says, you don't even know the word. You don't know the scriptures. Because the scriptures plainly teach that there is no marriage in, in heaven. There's no giving and receiving in marriage in heaven. And, and so this one, finally they're like going, oh my goodness, somebody, somebody finally had an answer. And it was Jesus. And so now at this time, guess who is, is do you see what's happening? You have the, the Pharisees, you have the Herodians, you have the Sadducees, and all of these people are now starting to join forces against Jesus. And so finally they decide there's only one, we have to arrest this guy. We have to try him, we have to execute him, and we have to do it in the darkness of night. Check this out, Matthew 26. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now, why were they going to do it by stealth? Because they knew that Jesus had the favor of the people. There would be a revolt. We have to do this quietly. If the religious leaders were confident that they had swayed public opinion to turn against Jesus, that the same, 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 that the saying crucify him, Right? Why did they arrest him in stealth? Why did they do it in the middle of the night? Why did they hurry up the trial? Why was he on a cross by 9 a.m. the next day? Because the crowds, they were afraid of the crowds. They knew the crowds would protest and riot. This was Passover weekend, right? The people have been celebrating, right? They've been celebrating all week. They're not going to gather before the sun comes up in the middle of the night in order to say, crucify him. It doesn't make any sense. And Luke tells us exactly what the people did when they actually did find out that the religious leaders decided to crucify Jesus. Luke 23, 27 and there followed him a great multitude of the people. How many? Multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. They weren't crying, crucify him. They were mourning for him. Every time you see the people, his followers were not fickle, they were faithful. The crowd that cried out, crucify him, was the other crowd. They were made up of those who had vested interest in his, a vested interest in his death because Jesus was a threat to the system. He was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their money. He was a threat to their control over the people. He was a threat to all their political clout that they had built up. John 19.6 makes it pretty clear. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him. 
crucify him. Who cried out? The chief priest and the officers. Why in the world do we think it was the same people that said Hosanna that are now saying crucify him when the passage makes it clear who did that? So what's the big takeaway here? What's the big takeaway? Well, it's simply this. Those who waited are the ones who believed. Let me say that again. This is the point. Those who waited are the ones who believed. Those who took matters into their own hands, they didn't believe. Waiting is believing. There are two kinds of, of waiting. There's a, a passive waiting, which is basically, you know, I'll do nothing and just see what happens. Maybe something good will happen. And when it doesn't happen, when we get tired of waiting, we basically give up. Now, you wouldn't wait 500 years if that was your kind of waiting. The second kind of waiting is, is an expectancy, an expectant waiting. This person, the expectant person, is filled with hope and trust that God will do things his way and in his time. Uh, he or she, the expectant person, remains hopeful, remains prayerful, remains watchful. Watchful. Waiting is watching. They're one and the same. Looking for God. Waiting for God. Looking for God to see where God is at work and get ready to join him there. Psalm 135-6 says, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope, I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Do you see it? It's not passive. The expectant person waits with their whole being. But they're not passive. It's not a, a passivity. It's an aggressive waiting. They put their hope in God's word, which tells us that they read it, they study it, they've memorized it, they meditate on it, but most of all, they believe it. And then once they know what God has said and understood the promises of the Lord, they watch for him to do it expectantly. And we live in this, this rather instant gratification society, right? We want everything fast. We want fast internet. Uh, all these commercials. Is your internet too slow? And I look at that and I go, what, why is that a thing? Remember dial-up? And we're like going, I can't look up, you know, something, some bit of information in the next half a second. We, we want fast internet. We want fast food. We want fast results. We hate to wait. We don't like to wait. We, we are also the most anxious people in human history. The most anxious society in human history is us right now. Now, do you think that those two things have a correlation? Perhaps. Of course they do. Of course they do. We... We live in this constant needing things to go faster and faster, and it just produces, it's just like Isaiah said, I know what we will do. We'll get on swift horses. And the world just goes faster. When it comes to our relationship with Jesus, 
right? Jesus, he calls us to walk with him. He never calls us to run with him. It's, it's slow. It's waiting, includes waiting for God to act in his way in his time, trusting him, being attentive to him, right? Jesus waited. Jesus waited 30 years to start his ministry, which lasted three years. 30 years. It's why he came, and yet he had to wait 30 years to actually get the job done. And then he tells his disciples that they are to carry on his mission. I'm going to the Father. What is the first thing, the first instruction he tells them to do? Wait. Wait. Don't do anything until you receive the Holy Spirit. Don't try to do this on your own. Don't take matters into your own hand. You wait. Wait for the Spirit because you cannot do it on your own. It's such an important disposition for us to take as, as the people of God. And yet it is so difficult to do. We're not really known as the waiting people. We see what's happening in our culture. We see what's going on. We hear about uh, the church in America, how the church in America is declining. Right? We're experiencing that ourselves. And, and you go, what do we got to do? Man, we got to figure this out. We got to do something. And we look at the world today and we, we sweat over the world and, and we look at secular postmodernism, which is basically the Rome of our day that's infiltrated our ranks. And we go, how, what do we do? How do we respond? Shall we compromise? Shall we join forces? Should, should we just lay low? Shall we take up arms? What are we going to do? That's why we're in such political division these days, because all these different political uh, sects are basically going, oh, this is what we're going to do. No, this is what we're going to do. No, this is what we're going to do. And we know, man, we know about this, this decline in America. We know it firsthand. We've seen it here. We've seen our own decline. And I, I stayed up many nights trying to think of ways. What do we need to do to turn it around? We have had uh, meetings upon meetings to figure it out. And then we read the scriptures, you know, we read things like the book of Acts. And here's what we do. Our first inclination when we read the book of Acts and we go, well, look at this. Our first inclination is to go straight to Acts chapter 2, right? Pentecost. Spirit showed up. That's awesome. And we skip Acts chapter 1. But that's where Jesus gives a strategy on how to experience Acts chapter 2. You got to wait first. And again, waiting doesn't mean being passive. It's an aggressive waiting. It's an active waiting. Hosea 12.6 says this, So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Notice that they are still returning, they're repenting, they're, they're still involved with love. They're still involved with justice. And they are waiting. So waiting isn't just doing nothing. There, there's still repentance. There's still, there's still love. There's still ministry. There's still justice. Waiting uh, is, is praying. Waiting is 
worshiping. It is a longing. It is looking. It holds fast to love and justice. It is looking to, to discover where God is at work. Oh, there he is. That's what he's doing. Let's join him in that. It's not like going, hey, what can we work on so we can get God to join us? Waiting teaches us to want God more than the blessings of God. Again, let me quote Andrew Murray. So good on his book on waiting on God. He says this, at our first entrance into the school of waiting upon God, the heart is mainly set on the blessings which we wait for. God graciously uses our needs and desires for help to educate us for something higher than we are thinking of. We're seeking gifts. He is the giver and he longs to give himself and to satisfy the soul with his goodness. It is just for this reason that he often withholds the gifts and that the time of waiting is made so long. He is constantly seeking to win the heart of his child for himself. He wishes that we would not only say when he bestows a gift, how good is God but that long before it comes, and even if it never comes, we should all the time be experiencing it is good that a man should quietly wait. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him. Isn't that great? It's like going, maybe God is not just quick in answering our prayers immediately because all we want is the gift. All we want is the answer. When what God wants to give us is himself. Could we pray? Could we come to the point and say, God, even if I do not get what my heart desires and I have you, it's enough. The church is to be a waiting community. Right? We're to be waiting in prayer, waiting in storytelling, waiting by entering into the, the pain and loss of people to encourage them to wait and to seek the Lord, waiting by proclaiming the hope that is Christ. It's always when people are at their lowest that God shows up. These people in Jerusalem, man, they were under the oppression of Rome when Jesus came. When Israel is at its lowest, God showed up. When Jesus is dead, God shows up and raises him up. And the people who are waiting on him are always the ones who are prepared when he shows up. And by the way, let me just, theologically, when I say he shows up, I'm not saying that he's absent, though sometimes it feels that way. right? No, I'm saying that when he, in his timing and will, acts decisively on our behalf to do what only he can do. Uh, Isaiah 64.4, I love this. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no one has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. If you go and you look at that in its context and you read Isaiah 64, verse 1, there's the cry, won't you rend the heavens and come down? Come down, do something now. And the response is, uh, you need to just wait on God to act. And he will. How many, how many churches today have taken 
up waiting on God as their primary disposition and strategy? I'd say very few. Very few. Could you imagine? What's your mission statement? We wait on God. What do you mean? Well, I mean, we, we pray and we worship and we wait on God to show up. Odd. Psalm 127, verse 1, however, says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build and labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In other words, you can try, we can come up with every plan we could conceive of to build our house, but unless the Lord does it, it's vanity. And it's so hard for us to get this because waiting seems so un-American. America, right? Waiting seems like a pathetic posture in society that, that's like ours. You know, this is a get-or-done society. This is, we want to make things happen. But it could be that waiting is our greatest act of faith. And that's not just true on a corporate level. Think about your own crises. Right, that you, you have experienced. Maybe you're going through now. Maybe personally, maybe in your family. And you're going, man, I need God to do something here. It's hard to wait on God to act. It's hard to keep praying. You keep trusting. And you're going, man, things just stay the same. I've been praying. Things are staying the same. Maybe they even are getting a little worse. Isaiah 40, 31 says this, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And this is one of our favorite coffee mug verses. Right? You got some eagle flying off, you know, and that's written at the bottom of some picture on the wall. But have you ever considered to whom that was originally written? It was written to a people who are living, the Israelites who have been living in exile. Isaiah 40 is written towards the end of their exile. How long have they been in exile? 70 years. They've been waiting 70 years. And what is God's message to them towards the end of waiting 70 years? Here it is. Wait. You think they're putting that on their coffee mugs? Right? Do you think that was good news to them? Okay, we've been waiting 60, 68 years now, Lord. We've been waiting. And he goes, are you weary? Yes, we're so tired. We're so tired. Well, you know how to renew your strength. How, Lord, how? You keep waiting. You just keep waiting. It was those who waited that on that day cried, Hosanna, save us. Those are the ones who said, save us, when Jesus came into town. They were the ones who were ready when that happened. It was the same people we, we read about that hung on Jesus' every word. It was those same people who wept when he was crucified. 
It was those same people who rejoiced at the empty tomb. The religious leaders had long ago taken matters into their own hands, so much so that they didn't need Jesus even when he did show up. They said, oh, God, if this is him, what a terrible timing. Right? He's a nuisance to the system. We have worked so hard to build, and here he is messing everything up. And I look at that and I think, man, how many churches rely on their operating system to the point that God isn't really necessary? He's kind of like this side subject matter. We're going to do this. We're going to do our thing. And, and then we'll ask God to bless it. The future of the church in a post-Christian age will be determined by the posture that the church chooses. Will we wait on God? Or will we just trudge on forward? It's the same disposition of the church that we have been part of for the last 2,000 years. Because the reality of the matter is we are, we are still people who are waiting. Are we not? We're, we're waiting. We waited 500 years for God to show up since we read about Zechariah. Before that, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And now here we are, and we've been waiting 2,000 years for Christ to show up again. But here's the thing, is next time when he comes, those who are expectant, those who have been waiting and trusting and watching, they will be the ones who are ready. Jesus told a whole parable about that. The ten virgins. And next time, when Jesus comes, he will not be riding a donkey. Next time, he will be coming just like he did before. The passage tells us about the second coming, that he's going to go straight the same gate, the east gate, and he's going to establish his throne as a king. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges, judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, crowns. He has a name written that one that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, linen white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, of which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we find ourselves between these two comings. And we are given the option. Because the same two groups 
that formed under the fact when Christ came the first time are still in existence today. There are those, the few, who still gather and say, Hosanna, save us, Lord, save us. And then there's the majority, the large majority, who say, Christ, tell your people to be quiet. We have work to do. Which will we be? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for just uh, who you are. We thank you for uh, the truth of that day when you came. We thank you, Father, for the, the call to watchfulness and, and waiting. But, Father, it's so hard to do. It's so hard. Sometimes we just, just want to just give up, take matters into our own hands. Father, uh, you said that when you return, will you find faith? You didn't say when you return, will you find busyness? Will we be found faithful? Will we be found still trusting? Will we be found still looking expectant? Or will we allow the, the sway of the culture and the demands of the moment to take our eyes off of you? I, I pray, Father, not only for us as a church, Lord, that we become uh, a, a church that uh, falls deeply in love with you and takes on a disposition of waiting. But Father, as individuals, Lord, that we learn to do that in our own lives, that we bring before you uh, our own struggles, our own deep concerns, whether they're our children or things within our own hearts, Lord. And we just say, Lord, here, here. I need you to come. I need you to do this. I cannot do this. You must. And then trust that you will. And if you don't, if you don't, and we still have you, what you give us is yourself, it's enough. It's enough. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We, we, we long for you to come. We long for all of this, this giant mess to come to an end. Father, it seems like every single week we turn on the television, something horrible has happened. Another school shooting, children dead. It seems like the enemy is just totally wreaking havoc. And we're like the psalmist, and we're going, how long, Lord? How long? How long is this going to continue? Then you tell us to wait. Not passively, but hopefully. So I pray, Father, help us to, to uh, just trust, to trust and know that you are God. To know when the mountains are shaking that we can be still, that we can be quiet and we can be still and we can just know that you're God. I ask this in Jesus' name.